a look at why childcare resources are elusive to so many families. Childcare is very expensive. It costs as much as university tuition in a year. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The impact of redeveloping Old California Restaurant Row in San Marcos. So we've seen it grown, um, and this was the epicenter of the town. And to see it just disappear, it's sad. Indigenous tribes are having to buy back their stolen land, and a conversation with writer-illustrator Trung Lee Nguyen about the magic fish. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Long ago, when the public square was the only place to share news, events, and happenings, people were drawn to it. Living in community with others was the route to understanding each other and the world around us. The public square has changed dramatically, but our need to learn and understand one another has it. This is Port of Entry. The Parker Edison Project. Listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. Thank you for listening to KPBS Podcast and for being part of our region's virtual public square, where you learn not only about the headlines of the day, but about culture, music, and the issues that are important to all of us. Help keep the virtual square alive and well. Support podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. And thanks again. This morning, California Governor Gavin Newsom announced his budget plan for 2023 into 2024. The outlook for the state includes cuts to programs to close a projected $22.5 billion deficit. Among the cuts are 20,000 new child care slots intended for California's neediest families. The state says it is delaying funding for those spaces until next fiscal year. As any parent of young children knows, Finding safe, affordable child care can feel like an impossible task. Well, a new multi-part series from the San Diego Union-Tribune takes a closer look at child care in California and shows a complicated and underutilized system of resources for California families and how that crisis leaves many unable to afford child care at all. Here to tell us more about the series is Kristen Takeda, education reporter with the San Diego Union-Tribune. Kristen, welcome. Thank you for having me. In your reporting, you write how California's child care programs and subsidies are not reaching families who actually need them. What are the main reasons for this? Yeah, I'd say there are probably two main reasons. One is that the subsidies, basically the financial aid that does exist for families to help pay for child care, it hasn't been fully funded. So it, it hasn't ever like served all the families who are eligible for those for that financial aid and those subsidies. So there are thousands of families who qualify but don't get the care because they have not gotten cleared off of the waiting list yet. So that's one issue. And then the other issue is that there are a lot of families who do need help paying for child care, but they don't qualify for those subsidies. Um, it's partly because the income limit you need to meet the eligibility for those programs is is not matched with how much it actually costs to live 
in California, which is obviously an expensive state. So for example, in San Diego County, like you do need to make a higher income to get by here because everything is expensive, but like that higher income you need to get by automatically like disqualifies you from subsidized childcare. But as we all know, childcare is very expensive. It costs as much as university tuition in a year. So that leaves a lot of families falling in a gap where they don't qualify, but they also can't pay for childcare on their own. I mean, how does the state support childcare today? I mean, what types of programs are there for families? Yeah, so there are a number of uh, subsidized childcare programs. Mainly, they come in two forms. One is there are some childcare centers and providers out there who will enroll families with children who qualify for subsidized childcare. So it's like you go to the program almost for free. Sometimes you do have to pay a fee depending on your income level. And then there are also providers who accept state vouchers for childcare. So that's also like if you're income eligible and you meet the requirements, then sometimes you can qualify for a voucher that allows you to go to a childcare of your choice. So I'd say those are the two main ways that the state like subsidizes childcare for, for families and for both of those, you can, if you think you qualify, I would recommend going to your local childcare resource and referral agency is what they're called. There's one for every part of the state, but they're the ones who would help you figure out if you qualify and if so, how to apply for that. In your reporting, you tell the story of one local mother, Zyra Reynoso. Uh, tell us about her. Yeah, so I wanted to feature her story because I felt like she really kind of represents a lot of like a lot of the struggles of uh, like a middle class typical family in San Diego County where it is expensive to live and meet basic needs. So she had grown up in an uh, impoverished childhood where her family couldn't afford basic things like uniforms. And so she really wanted to kind of advance from that and build up her life and then build up a new life for her own children um, and make a better life for them. And she was really determined to do that. But she ended up running into all these almost like disappointments about like how much everything costs and she can't afford childcare for her new baby. And that was actually like one of the the main obstacles she had in deciding to have another baby. She really wanted to yeah, give her young daughter a sibling, but the lack of childcare and being able to afford childcare was one of the only reasons holding her back from giving her daughter a sibling. And so now she is struggling to make ends meet, even though she feels like she did like everything right. You know, she she has a career in early childhood. Her her husband also works. And so they're both trying to make everything work out for their family, but they're coming up against these obstacles. And one of them is childcare, like the huge cost of it. And they don't qualify for subsidized childcare. They fall in that gap where they don't qualify, but they still can't afford it. So um, that's why I wanted to feature her because um, she's like really clear example of families who are falling in that gap and who need help but aren't getting served. Yeah. And, you know, Governor Newsom says he's got a plan to fund new child care facilities. How has that been working? And is it likely to have a major impact on this problem? Yeah, yeah. So that plan is um, part of that plan is to provide or fund 200,000 new subsidized child care spaces uh, within the next few years. Yeah, they have been funding those new spaces. But well, first of all, 200,000 doesn't 
represent all the children who qualify but haven't been served. So that gap between the, how many people the state is serving versus how many people are eligible, it doesn't fill that whole gap. And then second of all, a lot of people are saying there needs to be changes and help for the industry itself in order to serve more families. So just adding more money to spaces isn't going to mean that more families will get served. And that's largely because like the childcare workforce and the industry is already so strained. And that's partly what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to talk about in the next story of my series is that uh, a lot of providers are surviving a very, very low pay. They have really not ideal working conditions. A lot of uh, providers don't have like health insurance or benefits, like basic benefits that everyone would hope to get from their job. So they're so strange already that even if there were more families who were signing up for care, for subsidized care, um, there's no guarantee that enough providers would be able to expand or open their doors to serve more families. So I think um, more needs to be done, or a lot of people are saying more needs to be done with the supply side of the childcare industry and supporting the mostly women providers who are make up that industry before we can end up serving more families. Mm. We look forward to hearing more of your reporting on that and uh, seeing that article. I mean, in one article of your stories, you include a guide for families in search of childcare. Can you talk about that and what information is included? We tried to answer some of the basic questions we think families would have when they're searching for childcare. So things like, where can I find childcare? What kinds of childcare exist out there? And how could I get financial aid or help paying for care? For looking for childcare, I would, like I mentioned before, recommend starting with your local resource and referral agency. Um, they're a great resource. And so if you want to find yours, you can try calling. It's 1-800-543-7793. And you can also visit a website that's really helpful called mychildcareplan.org. It lets you put in the basics of what kind of care you're looking for and help you find local childcare in your area and connect you with your uh, referral agency. So I highly recommend going to that website. It's really easy to use and it's a good resource. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune education reporter, Kristen Takeda. Kristen, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. The need for housing is impacting small businesses in a once popular hub for dining and entertainment. KPBS North County reporter Tanya Thorne tells us plans to redevelop Old California Restaurant Row in San Marcos. Old California Restaurant Row was once a popular destination for North County families. But the scene looks very different these days, with lots of empty storefronts as leases expire and the spaces aren't rented out. My feeling is that the previous owners really let the place go, um, which is why a developer came through in the first place and saw an opportunity to tear it down and start fresh. Erin Harper has been with Old Cal Coffee House for 12 years. She started out as a barista and worked her way to owner. Restaurant Row got sold in 2020. Her five-year lease was supposed to be up for renewal in 2021. And there was no offer of a new lease. It kind of just rolled into month to month. Um, so that was when we figured out that their plans weren't to really like work with us or preserve us. 
At least, you know, we weren't being told anything. Then, Harper found out plans were in the works to redevelop the center. Plans that don't include most of the original buildings. The new owner has teamed up with developer Lennar Holmes to build a mixed-use development that includes 202 housing units and some commercial space. The businesses being displaced are now having to rethink their long-term goals. For Harper, that means relocating and rebranding. Old California Coffee House is directly tied to Old California Restaurant Row. Um, and without Restaurant Row, to me, the name kind of just sounds like Old Coffee. She has the new name, Ascend Coffee Roasters. But she hasn't settled on a new location yet. Not too far from the coffee house, Jim Hadley owns 55 Yard Line Sports Bar. And this was going to be our retirement. Run it until, you know, real good. And then when we call it quits, sell, take our money and, and retire. So now that's out the window. Hadley's lease will be month to month after February. He has about a year and a half to figure out his next steps. It's just, ah, it's just defeating him to see this property in general go away. We've been in this, in this town for 31 years, so we've seen it grown. Um, and this was the epicenter of the town. And to see it just disappear, it's sad. Hadley says he understands the town is progressing, but he doesn't think the infrastructure is set up for that growth. Our San Marcos Boulevard is terrible to drive on. Right? Um, the 78, forget about that. And it's just getting more and more. San Marcos Mayor Rebecca Jones recognizes the traffic concerns and the need for housing. She says she also talked with the developer about preserving history. Yes, we need housing. However, you know, it's important to remember that this is something that the uh, community really cherishes as far as the quality and the, um, you know, the history of San Marcos, because truly uh, Restaurant Row was part of what's put San Marcos on the map. She says the city expected changes for the site when it got rezoned for mixed-use development more than a decade ago. Not that it would change right away, but that it would change at some point in time. We reached out to Lennar Homes multiple times to ask about the project, especially what kind of housing is in the works. But no one from the company was available for an interview. Whatever is in those plans, Erin Harper at the Old California Coffee House says she hopes they keep some of the elements that make Restaurant Row so unique. And I'm hoping that they'll really preserve the character and what people love about Restaurant Row because like the wood beams and the tile work, like this isn't just some run-of-the-mill cookie cutter um, development. This place has a lot of character and I think we need to work to preserve that as well as the hardworking business people here. Work is expected to start in the spring on an environmental impact report for the development. Tanya Thorne, KPBS News. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. <laughs> it's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet. When you're hungry for information and entertainment, you go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? 
Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. Governor Gavin Newsom is setting aside $100 million to support Native American tribes in buying back their ancestral lands. It's part of his 30 by 30 pledge to preserve one-third of state lands and coastal waters by the year 2030. But once a tribe gets their land back, how do they restore and preserve it? KQED's Izzy Bloom reports from Humboldt County, where an indigenous tribe bought back 48 acres of land earlier this year. The 48 acres of coastal property is rich with wetlands, meadows, and spruce forest. If you look at it on a map, it's an island of green surrounded by residential development. The Wiat tribe, an indigenous tribe that's lived in the Humboldt Bay region of Northern California for thousands of years, identified this site in 2015 as a high priority to reclaim, in part because of its cultural importance. The land is referred to as Merwashawak, the name of a historic Wiat village site on the property. It's the first forest land to be returned to the tribe. So I think it just it represents you know, a place where tribal citizens can finally feel comfortable practicing these cultural traditions like berry picking or mushroom hunting, you know, where they don't have to feel like they're just on public land or trespassing or, yeah, a place to be that, that they can call their own. <laughs> That's Adam Cantor, the Natural Resources Director for the Wiat Tribe. He took me on a hike through the forested property. Watch out, this is really slick. Pointing out Sitka spruce trees with egret and heron rookeries, and hazelnut branches used by the tribe for basketry. Little uh, redwood violets that are wanting to get choked out by the ivy. The return of Merwashawak is the first time the state of California has funded native land back to address climate change. In July, the State Ocean Protection Council awarded the Wiat tribe $1.2 million through its Proposition 1 grant program, so the tribe could buy the parcel from a private landowner. When Governor Gavin Newsom rolled out his proposal to fund Native Land Back as part of his 30 by 30 climate pledge, he used this project as a poster child for the initiative. But $1 million of the grant was used just to purchase the land, leaving less than a quarter million dollars to actually restore and maintain it. Here's Adam Cantor again. There's a lot of, you know, attention towards land return right now, but, you know, if land return also isn't tied with funding for management, that kind of almost burdens and puts the the tribes in a rough spot. And so the tribe is really hoping to be able to use 30 by 30 funds to assist with the management of this property. The tribe is also partnering with Cal Poly Humboldt which is helping with restoration planning, improving water quality, and removing invasive species. I think higher education institutions should feel a great sense of responsibility to assisting tribes with meeting whatever goals that they have for the lands and the peoples and the projects and the things that they're developing, because higher education institutions occupy stolen, dispossessed Indigenous lands. Kutcher Risling Baldy is the department chair and associate professor of Native American Studies at Cal Poly Humboldt. She's also the co-director of the university's partnership with the Wiat tribe. And as part of that partnership, the tribe and university are also involving students in the restoration work, including indigenous students in STEM 
and other students in environmental science and Native American studies. When we're able to return land, restore land, and reconnect to land, what you see are brighter futures, uh, climate-resilient futures that really matter for the whole world. Rizling Baldi hopes that tribes and higher education institutions will continue building fruitful relationships that center indigenous knowledge and practices. That was KQED's Izzy Bloom. For the first time in 15 years, the American Academy of Pediatrics is changing its guidelines for how doctors should address a common disease among children, obesity. The new guidelines include early and aggressive treatments, which are not currently widely used, including surgery. Joining me is Dr. Jeffrey Schwimmer, a specialist with Rady Children's Hospital. Dr. Schwimmer, thanks for joining us. Good morning. Thank you for having me. First, can you tell us how big of an issue obesity in kids is? I mean, can you help us understand the scope of this problem? The estimates are there are about 14 million children in the United States that are experiencing obesity. And so it's roughly 20% of all children in the country. So then what are the new guidelines for pediatric treatment? So the guidelines really go well beyond treatment, and they're really about obesity care. And so the starting place is they, they want all pediatricians to be more aware of the problem and understand what to expect over time. And so a lot of attention is given to earlier awareness. Uh, when we see children in clinic, often what we'll do is we'll go back and look at their growth charts and we can tell a lot of what has happened has taken place over the first five, six years of life. So uh, what was it in the research that led to this new approach? So the, the new approach is a more comprehensive one. I think a lot of attention has been given to recommendation 12, medications, recommendation 13, metabolic and bariatric surgery, but not enough public attention has been given to the, the larger context. And that larger context is that over the last 20 years, there now is the body of research to understand the health consequences happening not only in adulthood, but even fairly early on in childhood, as well as enough information to see that there are a number of treatments that can be quite effective for children and adolescents. So I'm seeing in the headlines that Even bariatric surgery is being recommended for children. Uh, That's something I've never seen before. Can you talk about that? So the issue of metabolic and bariatric surgery really has dominated the headlines, as you've said. Um, That's recommendation 13. So there are many other recommendations that were made. In this case, what they're saying is that for adolescents 13 and older who are at the severe end of the obesity spectrum, not all children with obesity, that metabolic and bariatric surgery is something that should be available as a treatment option. And that is because it's been shown that it, for those at the severe end of the obesity spectrum, having metabolic and bariatric surgery as a teenager, rather than waiting until one's 20s, 30s, 40s, is associated with a lower rate of long-term disease like diabetes and cardiovascular disease 
and associated with many other markers of better overall health. That in mind, how early in a child's life should doctors address obesity? So it really begins even before a child is born. Uh, We know that there are many things that can contribute to excessive weight gain in children. And some of those things happen in utero. So quality prenatal care and attention to health for an expectant mother is really the starting place. Um, Once a, a child is born, good attention to proper nutrition and healthy lifestyle from the very beginning to set the stages for all children to be healthy is important. In terms of starting to look at the issue of obesity itself, that is something that really begins between the ages of two and five. And that's because looking at the growth trajectory between two and five gives us a lot of information about which children are much more likely to have weight and or weight-related health issues later in childhood and early adulthood. And so, you know, I mean, there seems to be a significant shift away from the the wait-and-see approach. Uh, What prompted that change? That is really what's happened over, over the past 20 years. So as you had mentioned, the previous guideline came out about 15 years ago, and the guideline before that had come out uh, in the late 1990s. And back then, there was a lot of concern about what does it mean to start using these labels that have been really just used in adults, and there wasn't that much information. But there's been a very large body of research done over the last 20 years that shows that children not only experience substantial weight gain in some cases, but we're starting to see more and more children who have liver disease, kidney disease, diabetes, heart disease, even in in children. So the consequences of it, as well as we now have a much larger body of evidence that there are many therapies, many treatments that can be very effective. And, you know, I think people have a lot of perceptions about what obesity is, what it looks like. Do you mind explaining? I mean, what is obesity and what causes it? That's a terrific question and an extremely complicated one. And as part of that reason why the this recommendation document is 100 pages long and has two, not one, but two technical documents with all of the information in it. O- obesity is a very complex condition. We all eat. We all have, have a weight. Uh, all children are supposed to grow and gain weight. So at what point does it become more weight than is helpful for that child uh, is really what the term obesity is about. It says that that child has a substantially increased risk for health problems. In terms of what causes that, uh, over the last 20 years that I have run the Weight and Wellness Center at Rady Children's Hospital, I've seen that there are more than 50 things that go into the contribution to obesity. And the complicated thing is that for any one child, which elements in what proportion they have varies tremendously. So we know that genetics play a large role, but certainly there are many environmental factors, some of them within the household, some of them within the school, some within the larger society that all can be contributing. Some doctors now describe obesity as a brain disease. 
What's meant by that? When we look at the genetics of that, and so approximately 60% of, of weight and body mass index is genetically determined, the majority of those genes are things that affect the brain or the interaction between the gut and the brain. And so they influence our, our daily habits. They influence what foods we have preference. They influence how much we eat, how much pleasure we derive from eating. And they also influence how likely we are to be active and how likely we are to be sedentary. And I guess, you know, I'm, I'm wondering how important it is for doctors to be familiarized with this new research and this new data um, when treating children and even adults. That's incredibly important. And that's, that's a, a great uh, point to make. That, that is one of the key elements of this document. This really is a physician-to-physician document that they want all pediatricians, all primary care doctors who take care of children to be aware of the importance of obesity and how to better evaluate it, how to be aware of the, the consequences of it. So if you look at the things that they ask pediatricians to, to look for, to screen for starting at age 10, diabetes, fatty liver disease, high cholesterol, high triglycerides, if you look, there's tremendous variability across the country as to whether that actually happens or not. There are some places where pediatricians are very good about doing that. And there are other places where that happens incredibly infrequently. And so all pediatricians being aware of this is an important point. Do you think the insurance industry is caught up? I mean, I know some of the interventions like uh, the drug Wigovi is, is recommended and intense health behavior and lifestyle treatment even. Um, is this something that insurance covers? Uh, insurance coverage is an important part of it. And so you know, with the Affordable Care Act, we saw a, a substantial improvement in insurance companies covering the evaluation for obesity. In terms of the medications, those are newer and the coverage has been quite variable. And so many children who would qualify for and would benefit from these medications are not able to receive them because of how expensive they are and the fact that insurance is not covering that. So that, that's an important issue that we need to work harder on. I've been speaking with Dr. Jeffrey Schwimmer, a specialist with Rady Children's Hospital. Dr. Schwimmer, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much for the conversation. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. This year's KPBS One Book, One San Diego selection for teens is The Magic Fish, a graphic novel by writer and illustrator Trung Lee Nguyen, also known as Trungles. The novel is about a second-generation Vietnamese-American teenager who uses fairy tales to help his mother learn English. Nguyen spoke with KPBS arts producer and editor Julia Dixon-Evans. Hi, Trung. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So this book is told primarily through the perspective of Tian, a teenager, and his mother living and working in the United States. Can you tell us a little about who this family is? 
Sure. So I based a lot of um, the characters in The Magic Fish on the experiences of my own family that I observed kind of growing up in the United States and learning English and learning the culture alongside them as well. And so it's a family that um, whose dynamics are kind of based on what I observed both in my own family and in other immigrant families that I grew up around. And Tian is gay, and he struggles with coming out to his family. He says that he doesn't know the word in Vietnamese. Can you talk about the importance of language in this story? Yes, absolutely. Um, this was a struggle that I also had growing up trying to articulate my sexuality to my parents when I was growing up. We didn't share a language and a or share a vocabulary to discuss these things. Um, and so it was one of those uh, situations where I do remember going to the library and trying to find language resources to be able to articulate the exact things that I wanted to tell my parents. And I think I was really encouraged to explore this in The Magic Fish because when it comes to describing sexuality, when it comes to describing gender and queerness, the ways that we talk about these things, the words that we use kind of change all of the time. They're dependent on where we find ourselves in time and regionally as well. And so for The Magic Fish, I think the um, continued impetus for me to want to tell this precise type of story is that even within queer communities, we we shift in the ways that we describe ourselves and we kind of have to offer each other a little bit of grace um, around the language through which we find ourselves, basically. So I, I think exploring language, both within the context of culture and within the context of very practical day-to-day -day existence, um, that was something I was kind of interested in exploring in The Magic Fish. Now, there are several fairy tales told inside of the book. Some of them are a retelling of the Cinderella story and another of the Little Mermaid. Can you tell me about your use of fairy tales in the story and why those stories? Sure. I think the the seed of this project was I had always wanted to retell the Vietnamese Cinderella as I had heard it growing up because that was a story that was familiar to my parents and I have a lot of strong warm sentimental feelings about it and so I'd always wanted to take it on as a project and originally the magic fish was just supposed to be a bunch of Cinderella stories kind of put together and then I had to figure out what these stories meant to me and why I was drawn to Cinderella stories and stories about transition um, in these ways. And so I kind of started with the Vietnamese Cinderella, and then I um, told another Cinderella story as a point of comparison for readers to kind of give them the sense that even though stories might be very similar, they have different priorities depending on who's telling the story. And then um, transitioning from those two stories into The Little Mermaid felt very natural for me because even though The Little Mermaid is not strictly a Cinderella story, it is a story about giving up the things that are familiar to you in order to be with the people that you love and to have the life that you want for yourself. And that's something that I find to be really resonant as an immigrant, but The Little Mermaid is also a queer allegory um, in the iteration that we best understand it through Hans Christian Andersen. It was sort of a love letter. And so all of these themes sort of coming together um, wasn't something that I had intended at the very beginning, but reaching in and exploring why those themes were really resonant with me really helped me tether the important elements of the fairy tales together um, within the context of the overarching story in The Magic Fish. And when you say there's a Vietnamese Cinderella, as an immigrant, 
Was it surprising that every culture has, seems to have a version of these same fairy tales? Yeah. When I was a kid, I was really surprised. I was like, oh, there's this wonderful um, um, kind of underlying story archetype that manages to find its way across different cultures. And I realized that the Cinderella story wasn't the only one. There are a lot of really common, you know, fairy stories and common tropes that show up from culture to culture. And I think a part of my attraction to fairy stories is that they're so organic. They They feel like they're they're people almost. I love the notion that a fairy tale is something that that can exist in multiple places or that it moves from place to place and it changes clothes depending on the culture in which it finds itself and it changes its priorities. And so fairy tales illuminated the notion that stories are more about the storyteller and that even though the content of the story might be really similar from place to place, depending on who's telling the story, you get a sense for that person's priorities and their hopes and their fears and their dreams and all of those things highlight to me that storytelling is a communal activity. It's it's a shared experience and it's a way for us to impart kind of difficult to describe parts of ourselves to each other. And I, I really love that about fairy tales. So this book travels through time and language and imagination. Uh, we're weaving through the present tense, his parents' past, and also these fairy tales. And you use color to to kind of structure this. Can you tell us how and why you do that? Sure. It's a combination of really excellent editorial feedback and also limitations. <laughs> I had originally pitched The Magic Fish as a story that I wanted to tell in black and white. Um, I grew up reading a lot of manga and a lot of um, uh, Sunday comic strips. And so I was used to reading comics in black and white. And it was where I was most comfortable aesthetically and coloring is um, enormously difficult for me. And so I wanted to tell the story um, in black and white, and my editors really wanted to be able to print it in full color. And so we came up with a compromise where I could use a limited palette in order to tell the stories. And then um, because I wanted to tell the story in a way that was a little bit more elegant, and I knew that I would be kind of jumping between different story universes, um, one of my editors actually suggested, well, what if we change the palette to help orient the readers in different spaces? And so then we kind of came up with this uh, palette change between the different story universes. Um, I wanted to use different colors that way because I didn't want to um, use text boxes too much. I didn't want to be too didactic for the reader. And I wanted them to be able to um, pick up on the nuances of the shifts in the hues so that they could orient themselves in the stories for themselves that way. Trung, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you so much for your questions. That was Trung Lee Wen, author of The Magic Fish, speaking with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans. The book is this year's KPBS One Book, One San Diego selection for teens. For more about KPBS's One Book, One San Diego, go to kpbs.org. Sports journalist Jamil Hill has shattered glass ceilings and made a career out of exploring the intersections of sports, politics, race, and culture. As an Emmy Award-winning former co-host of ESPN Sports Center and contributing writer for The Atlantic, Hill is also known for telling hard truths. In her newly published memoir, Uphill, she shares the story of her success failures, and family. I spoke to Jamil Hill recently. I started by asking why it was so important to her to be transparent about her life. 
Well, I think most people have the expectation when they decide to dig into a memoir, like they really want to learn about the person. They want to know what shaped them, what was important to them, their mistakes, triumphs, failures, all of those things. And given what my career has been as a journalist, I could not imagine, you know, writing a memoir and not being truthful and transparent. Um, You know, it kind of goes against the grain and the core tenets of journalism. So if that's the expectation that I have when I sit down with the subject, it felt like it would be insulting to the audience if I did not deliver um, the same honesty and truth and authenticity that I think um, most of us want to see in the people that we choose to listen to. One of the things that you talk about in your book is the backlash that you received when you called Donald Trump a white supremacist. Why was it so important to be so direct with your words um, as a journalist and at that moment in time? Well, at that moment, I didn't really think I was saying anything revolutionary. I mean, I thought it was kind of obvious. So that's why I think in my book, I refer to it as one of the most unoriginal things I've ever said. And I was just as surprised as anybody by the intense backlash. I thought at that point, especially this is post Charlottesville, that America had fully understood the element that was in the office of the president. But clearly that wasn't the case. Uh, I do think some of the backlash and the reaction was rooted in the who and the where. The who being a black woman, the where being ESPN. I didn't say this on the air, of course. I said it on social media. But because it's, it's so closely aligned to my identity being a sports anchor at ESPN, I think it was the um, the unlikeliness of it coming from somebody like me who represented the company I represented at the time. You know, maybe it would have been different if I worked at CNN or a news outlet that traditionally covers politics, but because I was coming from a sports space, I think that drew a different kind of attention. How important do you think it is for journalists and news organizations to be direct and describing uh, these sorts of things and saying when something is racist, just saying it when someone is a white supremacist, just saying it. How important is that? Well, I think it's really important. And frankly, I think the media has abdicated their responsibility, not just in telling the truth about racism, but also in telling the truth about a lot of things about the fate of our democracy, about our political climate. You know, we keep trying to hide behind the false shell of objectivity Objectivity is not what you should strive for as a journalist. You should strive for fairness. That's different. Um, And you should strive, you know, to obviously tell the truth. You know, that truth may be on one side or the other. And if you, um, you know, if anybody's familiar with what are some of the core values that are supposed to be part of journalism, certainly ones that I heard Throughout my career, as I was coming up as a journalist, it was being a watchdog of society. It was holding people in power accountable. How can you hold people in in power accountable if you don't tell the truth, if you don't ask questions, if you don't inspire people to critically think? That's the whole point of journalism. So I think by uh, the media, in in many cases, just not being courageous enough to do this. I mean, a, a lot of it is because media is so corporate. And behind these corporations are people who are kind of invested in the chaos. And also there are people who support some of the political candidates or the people uh, or the institutions that need to be most checked and 
um, it's because of that that, you know, you wind up getting a very cowardly approach to some of the serious issues that we have in this country. Something else you talk about in your book was your salary, the salaries that you made at ESPN, for example, and you gave insight into the contract uh, negotiations. Why was it so important for you to do that? Well, I do think that we've all usually been taught like not to share those kind of things that somehow is taboo, but it's really our greatest weapon in many cases to being undervalued. Because if you know what a company has to work with, or if you can understand what the landscape is, I think it makes you more informed and a sharper negotiator when it's your time to negotiate a contract. Uh, And it was also, you know, my way of showing the difference between perception and reality. You know, when I first got to ESPN, the perception is that every contract you get, you're going to make an obscene amount of money. And that's not really true. I mean, my first contract by the standards of the contracts that I had overall at ESPN was was pretty terrible. <laughs> it was the worst one. You know, I felt like a new artist that got the record deal, and we know that first deal <laughs> is just never going to do you right. <laughs> so um, so I think people, because I was at ESPN, just assumed that, um, you know, I just was balling and rolling in dough. And I think for black women who tend to be at the lower rung of the pay scale, it's really important that we share that kind of information so that we can truly capitalize on our worth. You describe yourself as unbothered. What do you mean by that? I think the the word sometimes makes people arch their eyebrow because it seems like that it's giving, I don't care, but that's not what it's supposed to mean. It's supposed to mean when you reach a point in your life where you're so comfortable in your own skin, where you don't really need validation in order to stick and stay in in your truth and you don't need it as something that helps you program your every move then you reach a state where you you divorce yourself from caring about what other people think and how other people are judging your life what do you hope people take away from your book well i hope that people understand that even in pain and trauma, there's purpose. I hope they also understand the importance and value in getting to learn the full selves of the people they most care about so that you can understand their perspective. You're not saying you have to agree with it, but you can at least understand it. And more importantly, it leads to them getting more grace from you. What are you working on next? Um, <laughs> I feel like uh, I got 62 jobs now. <laughs> But, you know, one of one project that's front of mind is uh, I'm executive producing Colin Kaepernick's uh, documentary, his 30 for 30, that will, uh, you know, be on ESPN. And that's been a fabulous experience with working with Spike Lee, who's directing it. Um, I'm also um, launching a podcast network with Spotify, the Unbothered Network, which is uh, for black women, centers black women, black women led. And the first two podcasts in the network are dropping the first two weeks in November. Uh, black Girl Bravado, which was an existing podcast that we licensed, and um, Sanctify, which is an original that addresses the modern way in which black women worship, um, touching on all the taboo topics uh, in the church that go addressed and unaddressed, particularly the things that happen outside the the pulpit and the pews. And so I'm really excited about both of these projects. It sounds fascinating. Uh, Congratulations to you on your upcoming projects and the release of your book. 
Thank you. I appreciate it. I've been speaking with sports journalist Jamil Hill, whose memoir, Uphill, is out now. Jamil, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. KPBS On Demand is supported by Under the Sun Foundation, presenting the Candlewood Arts Festival in Borrego Springs, featuring temporary public art projects that engage community and place. March 23rd. More at candlewoodartsfestival.org.